Hello, welcome to Philosophy Voiced, a podcast from the Center for Ethics, University of Pardubice. I am Niklas Forsberg. And I'm Kamila Pacovska. Today we're talking to Professor Raymond Gaeta. Raymond is a professorial fellow at the Faculty of Arts at uh, Melbourne Law School and at the University of Melbourne. He's Emeritus Professor of Moral Philosophy at King's College London and a fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities. Ray is also a senior research fellow here at the Center for Ethics, uh, University of Pardubice, and we are very happy to have you here every once in a while. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Let us begin by asking you to say a little bit about yourself, and in particular to yourself as a philosopher. So, who is Raymond Gaeta, and how would you place yourself on an imagined philosophical map? Uh, I'm not at all sure where I would place myself on that map. I started uh, as an undergraduate studying psychology, not philosophy, uh, because I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. Um, anybody who's read my book, Romulus, my father, might understand why there was so much madness in the family. Uh, I thought I might do something about it. Uh, but instead, uh, I just electrocuted, le- electrocuted rats and my friends, electrocuted them when they got the wrong answer to a question, gave them, gave them smarties when they got the right answer. It was all called behaviorism at the time. And I rebelled against this and uh, started a magazine uh, attacking behaviorism and wrote a very uh, polemical essay uh, for my second year. Uh, Its title was Man or Methodolatry. You can can see what it was uh, like. And the man who marked it, uh, who was Czech actually, uh, said to me, called me and said, Ah, Gaita, you know, you're not an empirical psychologist, are you? He said, you should be studying philosophy. I said, I don't want to study philosophy. I want to change psychology. He said, never mind. I've made an appointment with uh, with the professor of philosophy for next week. Make sure you take it. And that, that's how I went into philosophy. Uh, and, and, uh, and so that interest from psychology persisted in my work uh, in the philosophy of mind. And I, uh, I became, wrote a master's thesis on reasons for action and became a convinced Davidsonian, Mm. uh, which lasted for quite a while. Uh, But um, then when I... I, In in fact, uh, I went to do a PhD originally in logic with Peter Geach, not in moral philosophy, which I wasn't at all interested in at the time. Mm. And I had no axe to grind about how it should be either. But uh, for uh, for a a number of uh, contingent reasons, I... I fell, so to speak, into the arms of Roy Holland, who became my supervisor. Uh, and I, because I, because I wasn't interested in moral philosophy, I was in fact interested in what I am still interested in. And so uh, I thought under Roy, I might be able to write something about that. And at the time, because I had to make a choice between philosophy and mountaineering, uh, I thought, well, uh, if I get a PhD, that's fine. If I don't, I'll go to Chamonix and become a mountain guide. <laughs> uh, and I ended up getting a PhD. Um, uh, and pe- people, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, partly because of uh, the influence that Peter Winch had on me when I went to King's, uh, I became impressed by certain aspects of Wittgenstein's philosophy. Mm. Uh, and uh, for a number of reasons since then, uh, people have regarded me as a Wittgensteinian. 
uh, although I tend to resist being classified uh, yeah. in, in that way. And I, I hope it's not arrogant if I say I, I feel that I've tried to plough my own furrow uh, in, in my philosophical work. And usually when people do assimilate me to a group of Wittgensteinian philosophers, I tend to feel that I've been distorted in doing so. So that's one reason I resist it. Uh, a lot of people have said to me um, that I, I have a lot in common with Levinas, um, and indeed much more with Levinas than with, with, uh, with Wittgenstein. Um, I, I, I haven't studied Levinas, so I don't know if that's true. But I do know that when I give papers on the continent, they don't know quite what to make of me because they assume I would be an analytical philosopher. And in some ways I am, and in some ways I'm not. And they constantly say, well, Levinas is the obvious place where we would place, uh, yeah. uh, place you. The thing that has been really important to me in analytical philosophy is the attempt to write as clearly as you possibly can. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't even allow my students uh, to use epistemology as a word in tutorials because <laughs> I said, look, it's too easy to say you've confused an epistemological and ontological point and trip that trips off the tongue. So, yeah. Um, one of the things that stands out about you, uh, if one thinks about you as an academic philosopher of today, um, is that it seems very wrong to call you just an academic philosopher. Uh, several of your books, um, I'm thinking particularly about the philosopher's dog, Romulus, my father, um, who also was turned into a movie in 2007, and after Romulus. These books are very unlike most books written by academic philosophers, and they've attracted a wide readership. How would you describe your relationship between these two sides of your thinking, one more academic, the other less so? Uh, I, I think it's true to say that none of my books has been straightforwardly written for an academic audience. Uh, Good and Evil would be the, the closest to that, but even, even that, uh, I had a sense of a broader audience. Uh, the, the, the books you mentioned are, are, are very different. Um, uh, After Romulus uh, has no philosophical discussion in it at all. Uh, although I liken my father's moral uh, stance as being like Socrates, better to suffer evil than to do it. And it's obviously a book written by a philosopher mm. uh, and people who have found good and evil sometimes difficult to understand have told me that they understand it better having read Romulus, my father. Yeah. Um, Roger Scruton called uh, The Philosopher's Dog uh, an experiment in narrative philosophy. Um, he must have thought the experiment uh, uh, succeeded because he liked the book. <laughs> mm. uh, but, uh, it, it, uh, and, and that has, uh, uh, well, there was an interesting review by a philosopher who liked the book a lot, said it was sensitive and really well written and insightful and praised it in all those sorts of ways, but said it's not good philosophy. And the reason he said it's not good philosophy is he said it, because it didn't argue its case in the way a philosopher should. Uh, I felt that was a misunderstanding uh, of of what was going on in the book. Mm. Uh, Sophie Grace uh, once said of my work that I didn't stand on the battleground of the theories, uh, 
in ethics, consequentialism, virtue theory, Kantianism and so on, uh, but stood off the battlefield trying to expose the assumptions that constituted the battlefield, the conceptual space in which these arguments were, uh, or the battle was uh, conducted. And I felt just uh, about the philosopher's dog, I I would have said to this philosopher who said it's not good philosophy, I would have said, well, this offers a different perspective. This invites you to see rather differently what we call the problem of other minds, for example, uh, and the role that talk of rights might have in our relation to animals and so on. Uh, So it's not as though I would say flatly, look, that's a book of philosophy. Uh, I started writing about animals (laughs) Mm -hmm. and ended up writing as I wrote. but but it's but I still reflecting on it and uh, reflecting on the response that other philosophers who have taken it as a book of philosophy uh, have had to it. Uh, I do think it's an example of what Sophie Grace was talking about. After Romulus is 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 again a rather different book, and it's an example of the fact that at a certain point in my life I didn't care really much for whom I was writing, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it it. It has some essays which are purely in a narrative voice, uh, but there are uh, there are three philosophical pieces, or two and a half philosophical pieces actually. One on the concept of character, but I related to a discussion of my father, uh, and there's one about truth in narrative, which I relate again to Rom- the book Romulus, my father, uh, thinking that since the book. Romulus, my father, had a very large readership uh, uh, and uh, that that people would be, many philosophers and many non-philosophers would be interested in these philosophical topics. Mm. And because the film was made, uh, I developed an interest in the idea of being true to the spirit of something uh, as distinct from truth and truthfulness. And that's a philosophical essay too. Um, so, and all these books are, are, are in all those books. You would find the, uh, I think you would find the philosopher you would recognise, or you would recognise the philosopher who wrote Good and Evil. Mm. I think so. Okay, but if we if we go back to academic philosophy, I think it's fair to say that you are a bit uncomfortable with the way philosophy is often conducted in the academia today. Am I right? Uh, yeah, um, for uh, even in, well, in the case of moral philosophy, uh, even under the best academic uh, conditions, uh, I think it's problematic uh, as to whether it can be a, a, a discipline. If you think of a discipline uh, as constituted by a certain kind of certified mastery. You get a degree, you uh, get a PhD, uh, you're appointed by a, a, a range of competent people, uh, and you then develop the authority, then you have the authority, uh, and it continues developing all your academic life of, mm-hmm. of uh, marking student essays, teaching, and, and so on. And and I, I think uh, it's been one of my primary philosophical arguments that uh, moral philosophy uh, should be done in a mode of the discursive 
which requires a certain sensibility answerable to literary categories. Uh, and uh, that it, that sensibility has to be answerable to concepts like being sentimental, being vulnerable to pathos, not having an ear for irony and so on. Uh, and I think that's fundamental to thinking not only about problems in life, uh, but thinking about problems in moral philosophy. I also think, though, that you can't fail students for being rapidly sentimental uh, or be, uh, in all sorts of ways, writing in banal ways. I don't think these are categories that can be deployed in anything that looks like objective academic assessment in a liberal university. Uh, so, so uh, even under the best conditions of academic practice, I think moral philosophy and indeed political philosophy for the same kinds of reasons are, are problematic as disciplines. It's not problematic uh, if you're writing out and uh, not in the discipline, uh, as Socrates, the one that say, you just say what you say. Yeah. Uh, but but when you when you're responsible for marking stu student papers and PhDs, then it's a completely different matter. Mm -hmm. Then a certain kind of objectivity, I think, inconsistent with the development of that sensibility or the application of the concepts that mark that sensibility in the marking students. I think there's an inconsistency uh, uh, there. But I'm also uh, uh, dismayed uh, at the way in which all disciplines uh, in the university, not, not only philosophy, have um, pretty much surrendered uh, to the forces that the institution now applies uh, on their practice and that comes out from outside the institutions. Uh, and Universities, I believe, have been very seriously degraded uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. And uh, though the, cause, uh, the causes of that are complex, uh, one, part, one part of the cause has to do with the fact that academics just wouldn't defend their disciplines. They just wouldn't say no when things were proposed. They should have said no, they didn't. What we make of that finally as a judgment uh, is, is, is complex, but I think it's just a fact that there are so many opportunities to say no which were not taken. Uh, and what, and what, what has happened now is that there are pressures on them to work in a way that radically undermine a kind of deep reflectiveness mm -hmm. which is necessary if you're to be at all aware of the assumptions that are forming your thoughts or that are forming the thoughts of a particular fashionable way of doing philosophy at a, at a particular time in history. Uh, though that lack of reflectiveness can be consistent with a very high-flying <laughs> kind of thoughtlessness. Uh, and that, that can sometimes disguise what is happening um, so, uh, 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 so I think what's happened is that for a variety of reasons, philosophy has, has betrayed its essence, as it were, uh, which is to become, to be a radically self-critical discipline. It's not radically self-critical.
So how do we get it back? How do we get back seriousness and slowness to philosophy? Uh, well, I, I, I think that, 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 that can... Look, academics are, as I've already suggested, not a particularly brave lot. They never have been historically. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, for that, re uh, the the only way that, that that can change is if the institutions that they work in in change. And there is some hope that I I, th I thought for a very long time that the conditions of academic life were so absurd, the conditions of public or parish, and, and uh, that philosophers had to get grants which are much more suitable for for scientists to do that. Everybody everybody knew it was absurd, and I thought at a certain point that it would all implode like the Soviet Union did. It would just collapse in on itself. It hasn't yet happened, but there are signs. And the, and the most important thing always to remember uh, is that whatever it's like in universities, there are these wonderful books that students have access to, and you never know at what time when that might inspire a whole group to overthrow the system, as it were, <laughs> in a way, or radically to change. Yeah. Um, related to the fact that you write for a uh, broad audience and to this discomfort with uh, professionalized philosophy is the fact that you've been rather actively engaged publicly as a philosopher as well. How do you perceive the relationship between academic philosophy and the public? What is or should or could be the role of the philosopher in the public sphere? Well, I don't think uh, that um, a philosopher, even a moral philosopher or a political philosopher, is obliged by virtue of being an academic, moral, or political philosopher to be engaged in public life. I think this is more obvious if 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 your passion is Plato, you're a Greek philosopher, or you're Descartes, or whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, um, I s such a philosopher might, uh, under the description of being a citizen or someone. You know, the taxpayer pays and so on, under those descriptions might feel obliged to get involved in public life, but not under the description of being an academic philosopher. Uh, I, th I think when philosophers do get involved in public life, uh, they ought not to enter it thinking they can tell people how to think, uh, which I think is what a lot of philosophers do think, that if they have an expertise that's in argument, Uh, and uh, often when they defend the discipline, for example, they say mm. uh, that its extrinsic benefit is to teach, to put people into the world who can think, yeah. <clears throat> given that they sometimes have a very narrow conception of what thinking, <laughs> thinking is. <laughs> that may not be such a good thing. And it is, it is important to know the philosophers do intimidate people uh, because of their capacity for what they call argument. And so people tend to shut up a little bit when they're in the presence of philosophers. And I deplore that. And so I think philosophers have to go into the public realm as citizens. Uh, I, mean, I mean, normally, if, if they're involved in... Uh, the, the, sometimes they can uh, podcast about something in their discipline or whatever. But but, but uh, in, insofar as they get involved in political uh, discussion or moral discussions in the culture... It's, it's as citizens in whom it will show, obviously, that they're philosophers because of the way in which they treat problems. But, but the important thing is they have to be open to it, showing for good or for ill. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people might 
actually a lot of people say, well, only a damn philosopher would be able to say something so crazy as that. Sometimes that shows a misunderstanding of philosophy. Sometimes it doesn't. And a philosopher entering the public realm has to be open to the time when it doesn't show a misunderstanding. Mm. And how do you perceive your role as a teacher of philosophy? How should the ideal philosophical teaching be construed? Well, I think, um, going back to what I said, uh, uh, the teaching, uh, in, in teaching philosophy, you have to encourage as much as you can that openness in a student, student's mind for that student to be prepared to resist uh, certain fashionable things and also to try constantly to uncover assumptions that, that, that are often not, not visible. That's, that, that I take that to be relatively, relatively obvious and to always to make sure Uh, this is why I wouldn't allow them to use the word epistemology. Because I, I'd say, look, it, it doesn't sound like a bit of jargon, not, not like if you're reading French philosophy, you know, this, this, <laughs> this looks straightforward. Or big phrases like the independently existing real world. Uh, because I, I, I'd say you can convince yourself and very sincerely believe you understand something that you don't. So, so we, I always force them to rephrase these things in, 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 in other ways. Uh, and I think that's that's very very important um, in 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 teaching philosophy. But the most important thing I think, and I, I think this applies to t teaching anything, uh, is that if you're lucky enough uh, to be involved in something, let's say a discipline, uh, there'll almost certainly be in that discipline things that are not just interesting and exciting, but things that are really worthy of love. Uh, and uh, and I, I don't just mean by that excitement or passion, but I really mean something that can be loved. And and people will differ as to to which philosophers, let's say we're talking about philosophers, uh, uh, might might be properly the object of that. For me, it's Plato, uh, Descartes. You might actually, I, I I always love teaching. I think there's such a purity. Uh, in the meditations. It gets more complex with some of this other stuff, but mm -hmm. the meditations is a, 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 a book. And I can't, too, mm -hmm. even though nearly all my work is critical of Kant. Uh, and and I think if you if you can pa uh, if if you can pass on this this might sound uh, very high minded But 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 it's 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 just a fact that sometimes the love of something that's been a cultural artifact. I mean, a, 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 the writings of the philosopher or the, the someone's music, for example, mm. uh, has has engendered in somebody a love of the world, not just a love of this, a love of the world that that is 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 in one sense unconditional. Which, by which I mean that it's not in any simple way dependent on the good and ill in, in the world. Mm. And uh, uh, later on I might read you an example of that from Pablo Casals, which I have quoted sometimes in, in, uh, in, in my writings, uh, in the, the role that uh, Bach played in, in, mm -hmm. in his life. Uh, 
so so uh, that, that that I think I mean if if let's put it this way if one thinks of what the public responsibilities of an academic are it's to ensure that in the practice of the discipline which is a I mean universities are public institutions after all yeah. uh, uh, is, 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 is to try as much as possible to put in the way of stu- students things that could possibly an object of, of love for them, not just intellectual excitement. Um, uh, uh, there has to be intellectual excitement too. Uh, philosophy is the kind of discipline, it seems to me, in which you have to be very bright. Mm-hmm. But it's not good enough to be bright because if you're bright, you, you become... Well, Camus had this uh, saying, he said, I like intelli- I really admire intelligence, but I distinguish intelligent intelligence from stupid intelligence. Some very bright people might be of the latter kind. But equally, people who are very sick can become very serious mm. if they're not also enjoying, as it were, the intellectual excitement of the thing, can become really a rather depressingly earnest uh, in in their seriousness. So it, it's I presume this is particularly valid uh, in teaching moral philosophy. Uh, especially, yeah. Is there an especially advice you would give to moral philosophers about how to teach moral philosophy? Because you were speaking about philosophy in general. Uh, Would would you say something specifically about moral philosophy and teaching moral philosophy? Yes, but 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 it it could be in some other part of logic where where the well, for example, if in in Wittgenstein, which is a very clear case, uh, in areas which had nothing directly anyway to do with moral philosophy, there was a passion and a kind of intensity. Uh, that uh, some students who were not very bright emulated and, and just it became uh, almost a caricature of seriousness. One thing one may think about both the teacher and the public intellectual is that he or she is some kind of expert. But I assume that you wouldn't be too easily comfortable with being called an expert. In fact, you've argued that when it comes to ethics, at least, there can be no such thing as an expert. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, I, 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 um, I think in the case of ethics as a discipline, there can be something like that's justifiably called the mastery of a discipline. I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure whether I would call that expertise, actually, but, but, but nonetheless, there, 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 there is that which gives you the authority to mark papers and and, and so on. Uh, but. Uh, and and if you get involved in public intellect, well, I hate this phrase, public <laughs> public intellect. If you get involved in public life, uh, uh, then it it will show that of very often that you've been trained in a discipline, educated in 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 a discipline, uh, and that will be the case if you're writing about ethical or political matters. Uh, but uh, but one of the reasons I, I said earlier that if you uh, become involved in public life as a philosopher, you have to be open to somebody thinking that might be for good, good and for ill, and they might think that your contributions have been, after all, rather banal, uh, and uh, that you're completely uh, lacking in an ear for tone, and uh, and indeed that some of the some of the things that you say are pretty morally dreadful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, then I don't think you can uh, step back and say, look, I'm an expert and I know how to think and 
if you if you want to say that I've said something wrong, uh, I've produced an invalid argument by all means, do that. But what's all this stuff about it being banal or morally terrible? Uh, which a lot of people felt about Peter, some of Peter Singer's uh, writings uh, yeah. on the conditions under which you could kill uh, a, a three-week-old child and not wrong the child, even though he insisted that you shouldn't do it for reasons that external sorts of reasons. Um, so, so, um, and he was, uh, uh, and I know Peter was very indignant at, at being uh, accused of of being. Uh, of, of, of offering something that was morally pretty frightening uh, and kept insisting, look, you just look at, at the argument. It's in, now, when I say I don't think there can be experts in ethics, I think that in, in uh, ethical understanding requires a certain kind of wisdom and you can't get that by doing a PhD. The mastery you get, by definition, if you've passed a PhD, is not necessarily... Uh, 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 you, you don't. You haven't necessarily become wise about even the topic you've written about, uh, and uh, someone else looking at your PhD might judge it to be, in fact, very shallow. Uh, and at the same time, think that it should have passed because the arguments are so well put and the ground is so well covered, uh, and so on. But I think it's. Imp uh, 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 I've, I've presented um, in my work a parody, which is of someone who has a moral dilemma on a Friday, and they ha uh, they have to have an answer to it uh, on Monday at lunchtime, and they're too busy writing their paper on moral dilemmas, which they have to deliver on Tuesday. So they say to somebody, "Look, you're a really close friend of mine. You've known me all, nearly all my life, and we've." been very intimate in our conversations about our lives uh, and your uh, psychoanalyst to boot and you're a really <laughs> good moral philosopher, much better, I have to admit, than I am. So please have a range of options, if not the actual solution. But let's say 10 o'clock. Now, a lot of people would recognise it as a parody and a just parody that yeah. other people would, a consequentialist would have to think, even though he's inclined to laugh, would be inclined to think, no, that must be wrong, they must be moral experts, because the expertise consists in thinking well and then having a mastery of the facts and so on. And the reason this seems like a parody has something external to do, ex is external to a cognitive mm -hmm. assessment of the situation. It's a literary device, perhaps a cheap one or whatever. But they have, uh, as, and of course, some people don't take it as a parody at all. So, so it 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 um, it depends on a particular conception of morality. And so, I wouldn't want to say flatly there can be no such thing as moral expertise. So. How do, do these two points, a philosopher that engages publicly on ethical matters, while at the same time denying that there can be no ethical expert, go together? Uh, well, uh, the, so um, they, they, they go together in... Uh, there's no inconsistency. You go into the public world as a citizen who happens to be a philosopher 
not claiming uh, expertise uh, for the most part. Uh, I mean, look, I have been at writers' festivals where I have mm. sometimes said, look, Philosophy 101 goes down well here, you know, when there's a lot of really stupid talk about relativism <laughs> and so on. And there, there I do feel. Uh, in fact, I have to say, uh, I'm not by temperament a conference goer of philosophy. Uh, but after going to writers' festivals, <laughs> I thought, by God, uh, these philosophy conferences really are good because at least people <laughs> know what they're talking about. <laughs> that is, they sit down and they work hard. But when you hear somebody constantly saying, oh, look, you ask six people to their opinion about a seventh person, you'll get six different stories, and always the implication there's nothing that counts as seeing the person as they are, then it seems to me there is scope to say that but, uh, and, and it's not arrogance, because generally when someone thinks that they've made an important truth, important point about truth by meaning reminding you that if you have six different stories, etc., etc., then that's a kind of arrogance too. Yeah. There you want to say, look, you could have read some philosophy, for goodness sake. Yeah. Let us look at one of your, as it were, interventions into discussions of topics that are of broad interest. In your paper, The Intelligentsia in the Age of Trump, uh, we discussed it here at the center two years ago, actually. You claim that the worst thing about Trump is that by his blatant disdain for truth, he destroyed the possibility of serious conversation between citizens, which is a condition of democratic politics. In view of the fact that we've been witnessing degradation of political discourse in many European countries, most obviously perhaps both Poland and Hungary, Do you think this is a general feature of populism as such? Well, I think, oh, oh, well, I think it is, a, as a matter of fact, a general feature of the populism that is, has arisen over the last few years. I don't think it, it has to be a feature of populism. Uh, if you mean uh, by that, if you mean by populism, uh, uh, sort of political projects or aspirations to political leadership and that depend on exploiting, to some degree, the resentments of certain mm. part of the pop, pop population. Uh, that, that um, uh, I mean, that's been going on for a long time, whereas I, I, I think the situation that we're in with Trump, post-Trump, is something I've never experienced in, in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, Australians, for example, are, are, are people who um, are prepared to accept that politicians are, on the whole, liars. And um, um, but uh, they're very cynical about politicians more than they should be. But it's, well, I, I, I noticed that when I, I wrote a piece on on politics and truth and so on about 20 years ago. And at the time, I was commenting on this and said that though they were cynical about their politicians, they always felt they had the measure of their politicians, that they always felt that they could put, they knew where to plant their feet on the ground and say, oh, that's all bullshit, or that's all that, or this, and so on. Then later on, when Tony Blair became Prime Minister of Britain and developed spin to an incredible degree of sophistication. What I felt about the Brits 
is is that uh, un, that they no longer knew where the ground was to put put their feet, and this was a this was mendacity of a different kind and with a different consequence for mm-hmm. people. And Trump has now taken this to a completely new level. It's the, the problem with Trump is not just I mean God, and I shouldn't say just. But, but it's not only that he lies so repeatedly that fact-checkers can't keep up with him. Uh, and therefore, people often just have to say, I don't know anymore what the facts are about this. Uh, the same was true in the British election, which I've been following a bit. And there were so many things I felt, I don't know what the truth is, is, is about this. And of course, when, when, when that happens... Uh, the people who've lost an election feel resentful. There's, and it's very hard to accept the results of an election when you know there has been so much mendacity. But in the case of Trump, there's a further and even more dangerous level, which is 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 that uh, he he, he uh, partly because of his supporters, but also because of what he's done, he's eroded the conditions under which there can be sober judgment. Uh, because because it's the, the application of concepts like you have to be gullible to believe that some of the cloud cuckoo land things and the and the uh, constant uh, inclination to accept cons- conspiratorial I mean he's constantly for example mm-hmm. accusing and in the in 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 Hannah Arendt pointed out that the, the degree to which that kind of thing was happening in Weimar. Germany before before the Hitler period, an increase in in uh, uh, superstitions of all all sorts. But anyway, also uh, things that make you inclined to think people had lost a capacity for judgment, which is a condition of critical thinking, as a, a condition of applying a concept of evidence. What counts as evidence? Uh, so it's not only that he's de- denying us the facts which are required for evidence. The concept of what, what it is to present something as evidence mm-hmm. is being eroded. And that is, in a way, much more dangerous. Because if we lose the... If, if the conditions under which sober judgment can be exercised and the political realm, political realm are eroded, that really is a path to dictatorship. And Johnson uh, is 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 uh, the difference between Johnson and Trump now in their preparedness to lie in this way is is negligible. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're both the same. He organized a small workshop in this September that was supposed to reflect on the current problem of growing polarization in it in politics. Uh, um, and one of the keywords that was used mainly by our colleagues from political science departments was cultural wars. You use it too in connection with Trump. Do you think it's something that helps to account for the breakdown of political conversation? Yeah, I, I, I think it, uh, it does. Cult- the, the, the culture wars are wars between uh, parts of the intelligentsia. It's, it's not the Trump voters... Uh, as, uh, 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 are not the warriors in 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 the culture wars, uh, and uh, the, the, 
the trouble with with culture wars is is that it it the, it um, diminishes uh, any impulse to generosity on either side. I mean, and so so uh, for example, if if you think of uh, issues of uh, the the concept of uh, political correctness is a concept in the culture wars, uh, and it it. Uh, it uh, and it's used as abuse by the right, and uh, then uh, w w without any uh, serious attempt, it seems to me, to see what is right and what is wrong in the phenomena they describe as political correctness. And because, every, uh, because everybody knows in, in cultural politics that sometimes stupid things are said. Mm -hmm. uh, but what one wants then to see is if there's something serious behind what, what is, is being said. Sometimes it can be the expression of something uh, culturally in the past that the person that, or the group of people who say it are not yet aware of. Mm -hmm. We're often not aware of the deeper sources of our, our, our beliefs. And, and when politics is fought in the culture wars, there's no generosity to try to, to find what that is. Uh, I've organised a lecture series, public lecture series, in Australia for 20 years. Uh, six lectures per series, always on the one topic. And in this last uh, series, I wrote a, I always write a blurb for what it's about, and at the end of it I said, it could have been said truthfully of every series over the last 10 years that it could have been subtitled A Pox on the Culture Wars. Mm. <laughs> if we say that, um, say, academics are attacked in culture wars, I mean, what are we to do? What's the antidote? What's the right reaction? Oh, you have to see what's right and what's wrong about it. I mean, if, if, if you're being attacked in the, in the culture wars for being... Uh, uh, people who are politically correct and, and therefore stifling free discussion about certain kinds of matters. It's an obligation to see what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. My own view is there are things right and things wrong about that accusation in academia. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, I can give a, an example. Uh, a, yeah. a friend of mine who, who also uh, organizes, this is in Melbourne, um, as, uh, public lectures and so on, uh, uh, organized a series of debates, not not debates in the Oxford Union sense of winners and losers, but as we mean it when we say that we need to debate this issue in our society. And the topic for one of these debates uh, uh, was, is Australia still a seriously racist country? Uh, and um, I should say, by the way, that this man has 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 been pilloried by by the right wing press over the years for his fighting for the Aboriginal causes. So, so. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, when that topic was announced, uh, 170 academics put their names to a letter to the vice chancellor saying this has to be cancelled. Mm -hmm. And if not cancelled, uh, then at least another, uh, with another name that makes it clear that of course Australia is a racist country, and the only questions to be asked are what what do we do about it? Now the the the, the people involved in in uh, in that debate were one was a, a, a Chinese human rights commissioner and had previously been 
head of the Racial Discrimination Board. And, and he suggested as an interlocutor, a person who was sort of on the centre-right, a bit more right than centre, but who could have been predicted to express, and in fact did express, a views that most Australians would now share, roughly. Uh, there's been a terrible history with the Aboriginals, what was done in their dis dispossession, that continued for a long time, and but things are getting better, no doubt, uh, mm. etc., et which is what most... Uh, and, and, and so, uh, so effectively, there's 170 academics were saying, we can't talk to people like this, mm. which means you can't talk to your fellow citizens. Mm. I mean, for goodness sake, how can you be so arrogant? Or how could you be so lacking in the spirit of democratic politics as to think you have to shut off discussion with most of your fellow citizens? So uh, now, one of the, I, th I think one of the things that's interesting about political correctness is, 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 is that I think the best thing that can be said for it is that it tries to make morally undiscussable things that perhaps should be, but they're doing it before their time, <laughs> if I could put it this way. Mm. I mean, cultures are constituted by the fact that some things are not discussable in them. That is to say, they don't grant that this... this has a, not, there is no speaking voice for this in, in most Western societies now, stoning women for adultery. Nobody thinks there's a case to be made for that. Yeah. Uh, and there are other things. Um, uh, no, nobody anymore is prepared openly to say there should be no mixed racial marriages, for example. Uh, younger people, like my children, for example, were as incredulous when there are arguments about whether there should be gay marriage as they would have been if someone had said, well, do you think there can be racial, interracial marriage? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so for them, this was not an issue that is, was any more discussable. They thought nothing could be said rightly. Uh, but on the other hand, in the culture, there are people who wanted it discussed and... Um, uh, it was suggested to be a conscience vote in the parliament, which would, uh, the whole idea of a conscience vote is that it's, it's, there are serious positions to be taken on either side. Now, now political correctness is, is, is as it were, uh, can often be a way of wanting something to be undiscussable before, it, it ha before the culture generally has reached the stage where it can be. I, th I think in 10, well, you never know what will happen in the future. Mm -hmm. Things can go backwards very badly. But if, if things are politically keep moving as, as they are, I think in 10 years' time people will be as incredulous that we were discussing whether there could be gay marriage as people are incredulous that there were discussions mm -hmm. about interracial marriage. But that time has not yet come. You've mentioned uh, your very successful series uh, of Wednesday lectures that you organized at the University of Melbourne. It actually celebrated 20 years this year. It's mm -hmm. great. Is this your attempt to fight for what you consider important, uh, truth, and, uh, truth in the age in which it is endangered somehow? Or is a fight a bad word for it? 
well, the, 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 it, it started, the lecture series started just sort of accidentally that I was appointed to the Australian Catholic University, though I'm not a Catholic, and, but I, I had to be in Australia for family reasons. And I had no other duties other than to try to give the university. It, it, it had just become a university. It had been a nursing institute, teachers' colleges and so on, mm -hmm. to give it something of an academic reputation. But it was also to enhance its public profile. So I started these lectures. I also introduced a, an annual lecture series, Simone, the Simone Weil Lecture on Human Value, to which I always invited an overseas, uh, always a philosopher, so it was Ray Monk, Simon Critchley, uh, Anthony Duff, Miranda Fricker, uh, Avishai Margalit, uh, or, or, or came to this, and uh, Jonathan Glover. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, so that's how they started. But but what I uh, my aim for them was always that that. And, and by the way, most of the speakers were not philosophers. Sometimes they were philosophers, sometimes they weren't. I wanted speakers who, who would rise to an audience that was prepared to think hard, to really, and, and, and they knew they came and they, had, they would be exhausted at the end of the lecture. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, and then I chose people who could take an audience with them for an hour long lecture without any trace of condescension. It wasn't just presenting aspects of this subject or whatever it is. They were addressing some problem at the time. Uh, and um, what, what pleased me about the series is that for the most part that happened. Audience and lecturers rose to, one, rose, rose to what they believed needed to be done if there was to be serious discussion in the city. I was very pleased that people talked about the role these lectures played in the city of Melbourne, mm. uh, um, and but uh, and 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 people will rise. They will think hard mm. if you expect it of them, provided it's never done with 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 an air of, of condescension. Mm. Have the election of Trump and the Brexit thing, and now Johnson. Um, Reflected the way you design your uh, Wednesday lectures, and um, have you noticed any change in both the invited speakers and the audience? And uh, no, no. Well, um, the there was one series though, on Trump called um, "The Intelligentsia in the Age of Trump," uh, but um, I, I was I, I made sure that 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 I I got speakers who could forcibly bring out. Um, that there was a certain arrogance on the part of uh, a liberal intelligentsia um, which showed itself in their failure to realise the degree to which their condescension to people that, say, Trump voters was part of the problem. Mm. Uh, and um, and the, the, I, I, the, there's no doubt whatsoever that, that um, many of the people who voted for Brexit uh, and many of the people who uh, voted for Trump uh, felt that there were, that let's say, there were people in New York and Los Angeles and so on, and London and so on, uh, who who thought of them as Hillary Clinton thought of them when she called them a basket of deplorables. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, when when you 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 feel not only about yourself, but someone thinks this about your children, they thinks this about uh, about your wife, it can enrage you even more than poverty can enrage you. So um, I, I I think. Uh, the, the, the degree to which resentment and condescension uh, enraged people uh, has been uh, not sufficiently taken into account. Although now I think a lot of people do agree that there are big divisions between what are called the elites on the one hand and people resentful of the elites on, on the other hand. Your daughter Katarina is a climate change activist and you yourself are very supportive on environmental protection. Have you yourself adopted some measures to reduce your carbon footprint? Yes, but only in the way that sort of good environmental citizens do. Uh, we've built a house that's completely, you know, uh, all the energy comes from the sun and, and uh, it's, it's made out of straw, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you know, I, I when I fly, I get carbon, you know, pay pay extra, and all you know. Re I, I do those, all those sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> I haven't written about climate change because I've never felt that I've had anything original to say. I hope it doesn't sound arrogant, but uh, the only time I do actually write about something or give a lecture on something is because I do believe I have something to say that's, for the most part, not being said, and I had nothing to say about that. I've encouraged my daughter. We had a discussion on uh, a public discussion. You can watch it on YouTube, actually, and um, uh, about it was to build as a philosopher and an activist discuss climate change and then yeah. brackets and they ha and they just happened to be related, <laughs> which was, which which was nice, but but I, but I think I think most things have to be done politically and so when I go back to Melbourne I'm going to join Extinction Rebellion mm -hmm. and together with uh, as many literary friends as I can muster. Uh, glue myself to the road in the hope of being arrested, um, in, in the hope that this will generate discussion, especially if I refuse bail and end up in, in jail. So. Yeah. Uh, while on the topic of family, um, Romulus, my father, is a biographical work and the philosopher's dog has some fairly intimate stories about your own life as well. Um, and, uh, but several of your more personal experiences, for example, the story about the nun, have taken on a rather central role of your, in your thinking. Um, now, what role does the personal experience play in your thinking? And what role, is the, what role do the exemplar play uh, in philosophy? Well, well in, in my case, uh, the, the role has been great. Um, uh, I think it's true that the major preoccupations of my philosophical work uh, have stemmed from my life in, in, in various ways. And of course, then they enter the traditions of the discipline. And um, I, talk, you know, I, I talk about those things in, in the light of the history of the discipline and, and so on. Uh, I think that the, the nun... Uh, it's, it's not just a personal example, it's an example of, of, of what I call witness. 
And someone once uh, stormed out angrily uh, from uh, when I was giving a paper, uh, said, you can't do philosophy by acts of witness. And to, and to which I, I felt like saying yes, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, you, you can write about this uh, and uh, it gets taken up by philosophers, mm-hmm. uh, as it has been. Uh, and so in that sense, you can do philosophy in acts of witness. Uh, but it, but it, it can't be present, certainly can't be presented as an example that the philosophers have to take on board under pain of neglecting something fundamental to the kinds of discussions that are going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it's not as though I could say, look, here's a really neglected counterexample uh, to something that should be, uh, to, to, to the dominant theories or and so on. Um, so uh, that, that, uh, I'd, I'd say that, that about the nun. Uh, the other uh, kinds of examples, the, the, um, the, the philosopher's dog, for example, which, which mm-hmm. uh, I, I hope the ways in which the examples are described and then the discursive reflection on those examples are, are, are rather seamless. Mm. And in, in that way, they, they, would, they would be, uh, um, I hope, uh, an example of what Sutton called narrative philosophy, where, where, where the discursive mode of thinking doesn't distinguish itself radically from the examples which 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 is discussing, but that could be true uh, even if it's not uh, per the, even if the examples are not personal examples, mm. and and so I don't think there's any need in philo- for philosophy for examples to be personal examples. I don't think it's a failing in moral philosophers if they don't discuss personal examples. I hope it's not a failing in me that I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The nun is an exemplar of what you sometimes call saintly love. And that idea takes on a rather central place in your thinking. Um, And I would like to quote a rather long passage from the end of a talk you delivered here last week on Prima Levi's Is This a Man? where you say this. I dread the prospect of a world in which, because we have allowed the language of saintly love die on us, we would no longer even find intelligible that those who suffer radical um, and degrading and ineradicable affliction are inalienably precious and can, if revealed to us in the light of love, remain fully amongst us, mysteriously our fellow beings. I also dread the prospect of a world in which we can no longer affirm, for it is, as I've emphasized, an affirmation to be true to what love has revealed, but but reason cannot secure. That even the most terrible evildoers, those those whose characters appear to match their deeds, who are defiantly unremorseful and in whom we can find nothing from which remorse could grow, are always and everywhere owed justice for their sake rather than because we fear the consequences if we do not accord it to them. This is the deepest reason why, despondent about such prospects, reading Primo Levi, I lifted my spirits. It's the deepest reason why, if this is a man, is a book we will always need. That's your, the quote from your talk. Now you express two related fears here. 
One is that we will not be able to understand those who suffer the severest forms of affliction as one of us. The other is that without the exemplar of saintly love, we will be unable to understand that we owe justice even to the most terrible of evildoers. Now, first of all, I would like you to expand a bit about what you mean by these forms of fear. How can the eventual loss of a concept take on this importance? And what more exactly are the workings of this mechanism? I would perhaps also like you to say something about your rather positive-sounding closure to this discussion. I mean, if you ask me, saintly love is something extremely rare. I wouldn't even say that I've seen it myself. And if so much hangs on it, I would be frightened rather than relieved when placing such, important, such importance to that notion. If, we, if I were to put it slightly provocative, provocatively, I, I might say, you cheer. Well, I fear that we're doomed, if you're right. Uh, well, I, well, I'm a, a little <laughs> bit p- more pessimistic. <laughs> but sometimes you'd have to cheer. <laughs> you know, you know uh, there used to be a song, I whistle a happy tune whenever I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but... Let's start with 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 evildoers because it's it's a bit more tractable, uh, I I think. Um, uh, I I I think of the way in which uh, many people uh, talk about the dignity of humanity or or the dignity of the person. I was often the inalienable dignity uh, of of. A human being, uh, and and many people do, and they're part part. They're, they're, these expressions are in the preambles to very important instruments of international law. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and I, uh, they've played a very very important role in 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 our culture, and uh, in part because many people have thought the talk of inalienable dignity underwrites talk of inalienable rights. Mm. Uh, uh, but but I, um, uh, there are two philosophical elaborations of this way of talking. One is natural law theory, and the other is in Kant. Mm. Uh, and uh, the way we talk about it is is, is Kantian in its, in its resonances. Um, anyway, I think neither of these philosophical uh, explications of these of these concepts uh, will work. Uh, and and so the question is, if we think there is something utterly fundamental here that we we we, we cannot lose. But the philosophical justifications for it are not not tenable. Uh, well, you can look for other philosophical justifications. Obviously, uh, um, uh, my own belief is that, that can't be found. Uh, and I think that that a talk of inalienable dignity uh, has risen on has ridden on the back. Of what I've called the language of saintly love, that 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 is historically, uh, there have been people uh, uh, who have responded to evildoers uh, uh, as though they must never be cast out, yeah. uh, um, they must never be treated as monsters, uh, and so on. 
uh, and 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 through their example, a, a, a language developed. I call it the language of love. And I actually, I actually think you can talk about dignity as an expression in the language of love, provided you realise that that's what it's dependent upon, mm-hmm. and provided you then become very careful about the heroic tone it often assumes when that tone is utterly inappropriate. In the Primo Levi lecture, I, I, I quoted Levi describing the most utmost degradation of humanity, mm-hmm. trying to emphasise that the word dehumanise, as we often use it, just can't even reach that level of degradation. Uh, and to speak of their inalienable dignity, to say, look, they've lost all their visible dignity, but there's a dignity they can't lose but simply by virtue of their humanity. And if one is compassionate enough, one will see it. Uh, to speak of their inalienable dignity strikes me as to speak in a, in, in a heroic key, which is just radically inappropriate. Mm. Uh, so... Um, so, and and I've emphasised the language of love needn't be, uh, of course, always referring to love and so oh, on. And, uh, and uh, so uh, so I, I so we've talked uh, about inalienable dignity. I, I I think people are starting to feel that the philosophical grounds for that are, are, are rather shaky. Um, and. So, and because they think the language of love must necessarily be tied to religion, uh, or what I've called the saintly love, then then there's a thought we have nothing. This has been an illusion, and a noble illusion, but an illusion nonetheless. And we have to face the fact that some people really are beyond the pale. And we have to face the fact that it was just true to say, if you want to be a human, be, be treated like a human being, be treated like one us, you have to behave like one. Otherwise, uh, we'll treat you in certain ways, uh, obviously, because we're afraid of slippery slopes. But mm-hmm. that's that's you know, we're, we're we're not we're not going to execute you in public or whatever. Um, so uh, so um, I, I I think for anybody. Well, if I could put the point like this too, it seems to me for someone who believes that every human possesses inalienable dignity, their sense of the world is going to be radically different from someone who doesn't. Their sense of what the virtues come to are going to be different. Their sense of what it is to wrong someone is going to be radically different. This is obvious if if you think of the word sacred. Someone who thinks human beings are sacred, their sense of what it is to wrong a human being is going to be different from someone who doesn't think that, very often at least. Mm -hmm. And their conceptions of the virtues will be often very, very, very different. So so there's there's a lot to be lost if we can no longer talk as we do about the inalienable dignity of every human being. And that's that's what 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 that's what troubles me. In the in 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 the the case of the nun, um, this was an example of a woman who showed a compassion that had not a trace of condescension. 
to people whose uh, affliction was ineradicable. They had been in a mental hospital um, sometimes for 30 years. They weren't ever going to get out. There are no happy stories of recovery to come come from there. Uh, They were completely drugged up and they, they, they were really degraded. Simone Weil's expression um, that some people are reduced to a state of dumb and ceaseless lamentation in their affliction applied to a lot of these people. Uh, and, and what I found very interesting is that the psychiatrists, uh, m- m- most of the, the, uh, the, the people who tended to them uh, uh, treated them badly, not just condescended, but treated them really badly. But there was a group of psychiatrists who insisted, and it was the first time I ever heard the expression inalienable dignity, that mm-hmm. one of them said to me, even these people possess inalienable dignity, and they insisted that they be treated decently. But what, 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 uh, and I admired them enormously uh, for it. Uh, but when the nun came into this ward, and what, 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 what completely stunned me was, was that she, she revealed in the way that she, behave towards these patients. First of all, the astonishing fact that they they could be treated without the slightest condescension. But I knew that only because I realised that the psychiatrist had treated that. Mm. that. And the other thing that struck me was, was that unlike the psychiatrist, I wasn't focused on her and her virtues, though she must have had plenty <laughs> of, of them. Whereas in the psychiatrist, it was like, I would mind them for their preparedness to put up with a ridicule, real contempt sometimes of their colleagues of being stupid idealists and getting in the way of practical, etc. Uh, but in, in her case, the focus was on, on what she revealed and which I found utterly astonishing, which I've never found the words properly to, to characterise, but, but let's say something like this, it could be true that people who had lost everything can in some mysterious sense be... Uh, and now, uh, if we lose... Look, no, no, by, oh, that's not by definition, but it's just obvious not many people can be like that. I mean, that's why it was so astonishing. Not many people can even be like those psychiatrists. Uh, but if, if, if we... The, the practical lesson of this is that if we fail to see how astonishing it is, and if we still keep talking about inalienable dignity, we will think we can respond as the nun did when we can't and don't. Mm. No? And this will lead to a certain kind of foolish optimism in how people in those places could be treated with respect. And I want to say you, 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 can't, you, you can't expect nursing staff in geriatric hospitals there's a, been a commission on aged care uh, in Australia at the moment and uh, the way in which people in these places are treated are absolutely shocking. Mm-hmm. But I, am, I want to say, in a way, perfectly understandably. Yeah. And, and, and one has to be really realistic about how overwhelmingly natural it is that if even such good people like the psychiatrists, wonderful people, could respond with condescension. Then the, then the ordinary run of nursing staff won't be even like that. 
So what we have to absolutely ensure is that there remain a language of saintly love in whose light we realise that there are people who can respond to these people in that way. That in some sense they are that, even though, even though in a way that, the, the, even though keeping that in our in in uh, understanding that in our hearts is almost impossible, mm-hmm. and therefore we have to try to let's, let's put put it this way, to to ensure that institutions like prisons, and institutions like mental hospitals, aged care facilities, don't render invisible the ordinary dignity that people have. Don't make it so hard on people to be like the psychiatrist is is the practical lesson of this. And I think we're, you, you see signs in hospitals, I don't know here, but in Australia, you always must respect the dignity, big D of patients, mm-hmm. remember that, you know. And meanwhile, you've been waiting for 55 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to say you can do something much more simple, just come on time. <laughs> All right. I think it's time for us to wrap up. And um, thank you so much, Ray, for um, taking part in this discussion. Well, thank you for inviting me it's to be part a of it. It's privilege to have you here. Um, thank you so much, Ray. Thank you. Thank you for having me.